The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning to study in the word of God. We are studying in the life of David, and we're coming into a chapter here, Second Samuel chapter 23, where we are going to be taking a look at David's mighty men. And it's an interesting chapter that highlights uh, the various mighty men who fought with David throughout his, uh, not only his time as king of Israel, but they were with him, many of them were with him prior to him becoming king uh, over Israel. And uh, we'll take a look at that today. We have other things we're going to look at as well. Uh, before we do any of that, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We need to ensure that our hearts are ready for the study of the Word of God. This requires confession of sin so that we might be filled with the Spirit as well as humility so that we might be teachable. Shall we pray? Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessing of being able to be here today. We thank you for everything that you provided so that we might be able to gather here and fellowship one with another. Father, we know that you made the provision for all of this, the building being here, the uh, electricity being on, the air conditioning working, which is particularly important this time of year, and also the transportation so that we could get here. Everything that was necessary for us to be able to gather here at the church, you made provision for that. And you also made provision for the technology that allows some folks to stay home as, as they need to, given the pandemic that's going on. We thank you that they're able to stay home and uh, still listen to the message being preached as a result of the technology that we have available to us today. Father, you are very gracious. You provide for all of our needs, and we're thankful for that. We ask now, as we study your word, that you would help us to set aside all the distractions of life so that we might focus on what it is that you're trying to teach us from your word on this day. We pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's most precious and beautiful name. Amen. Well, you know, it's interesting. We, uh, we have grace provisions. We have the opportunity to come and to gather. And I do miss those who are unable to come. Uh, you know, it was kind of nice, even though it was at a distance, it was kind of nice the other day when Sandra actually uh, came over and dropped off a dish uh, for us that we could have for something to eat. And, she, and But we didn't get to talk to her uh, from close proximity. She was probably 20, 25 feet away. But we got a chance to see Sandra and, and talk to Sandra, and it was great to see her. Same thing, uh, Jan Taylor came by and, and brought that. Others have as well, by the way. I'm not just limiting it to those. I'm just pointing out that it's such a blessing to be able to see people in person. And I know Jan said, uh, she said, man, I really want to give you guys a hug, but I just don't think it's a good idea. You know, and that's kind of where we are right now. And it, if, if you think about it, it really makes me sad that well, that's where we are. We're in a place where we have, you know, we have to be concerned that if we, you know, I, I, I don't want to make Jan sick. You know, I, don't, I mean, if I don't want to, if I, if I'm car- carrying the virus, I don't want to give it to her. So I totally respect that. But at the same time, it does make me sad because I miss the I miss the, you know, the fellowship that we have, the ability to give a, give one another hugs and shake hands and all that kind of thing that we normally would do, uh, but it's just the it's just the way things are. I was going to talk before we got into our life of David. One of the a passage we looked at last hour is such an important passage that we understand. Um, James chapter one. Uh, 14 and 15, which you can't see any of because I haven't unfrozen the screen. How about that? There we go. Does that look better? <laughs> James 14, 1, 14 and 15 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, it's a very important idea that we, are, that we all face temptations. Now, for us... We face temptations that come from without and from within, right? And so the idea, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. You know, these are things that are sourced from within with the, the sin nature itself. But can we not have external stimulus that is part of that temptation process? Absolutely we can. 
And if you think about it, the reason I want to point that out is because Christ himself, who had no sin nature, he was born into this world without a sin nature. Christ himself was tempted. Remember in the wilderness, Satan tempted him for 40 days. And I want you to think about that for a second. He did not have a sin nature. And nonetheless, there was an opportunity for temptation to be there from external, right? The external stimulus provided a source of temptation for Christ himself. But the temptation itself is not sin. That's what I wanted to emphasize this morning is that there's all kinds of temptations in this world and and you're going to face them every day. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, certainly, certainly there are opportunities for temptation for sin, even within the context of this local church. But I don't know about you, but at least to some extent, I kind of feel safe from most of that, right? That whatever there is that, that might be a temptation to sin within this local church, it's fairly limited, right? I mean, one of those temptations might be for gossip, for example, or things of that nature, but, but it's fairly limited. But as soon as you walk out that door, it all breaks loose, right? I mean, there, I mean and it's everything you encounter from billboards you see along the highway to television shows and commercials and radio programs and internet news feeds that you read and everything. It doesn't matter what it is. The world is full of temptations. But the temptation itself is not a sin. That's what James is emphasizing here. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And as I pointed out last hour, the idea of a conception is two parties have to come together, right? Two parties come together and then there's a conception that takes place. And I taught this multiple times out of the book of James that the two parties that are involved here is the lust itself and then our volition. Because if you think about it, that's how this happens. When we face temptation, what is it that allows it to turn into sin? It's your volition. Because we face temptation all the time. And, you know, it's interesting. In some cases, we have a temptation that comes our way and we just walk away without really thinking much about it. It doesn't really, it doesn't really uh, even cross our minds to engage in whatever that is, right? It doesn't, even, it doesn't even cross our minds. We just move on. Other times a temptation comes along and it's something that we're going to struggle with. And in some cases it has to do with the, the weakness of our sin nature. In other cases, it really just simply has to do with the circumstances and conditions when it happens. For example... I'll give you a simple example. Let's say you're at the office. I'm in my secular job. I'm at the office and I'm working and I'm super busy. And then somebody comes up and they start saying something where there's a temptation to get into a gossipy conversation. Well, I'm super busy. I'm like, well, hey, I, actually, I got to run, right? You know, I mean, I can just, it's super easy for me in that situation to just say, oh, hey, man, I got to run. I got to go take care of something. I've got to get this done by, by noon or whatever it is, right? That in those circumstances and conditions, it's easy for me to walk away from that conversation. There might be another circumstance at work where I'm not very busy at all, right? I'm, I'm doing something. In fact, in fact, even worse than that, I'm doing something I don't even really want to do, right? So now when this temptation comes along to have a gossipy conversation, now it's a problem, right? Because it actually sounds a whole lot more interesting to me to talk about so-and-so than it does to go back to my desk and do what I'm actually supposed to be doing. You see what I'm saying? So circumstances and conditions can cause a temptation to be more of a problem. But ultimately, it doesn't matter how, how much the temptation intrigues us or entices us. What matters is do we succumb to it? Right. Do we succumb to it? Do we succumb to the temptation and engage in the sin or do we say, no, I that's I don't want to go down that path. And by the way, I I don't have any problem at all, either in this context of the local church or within the context of uh, my secular job or whatever else I might be engaged in. I don't have a problem at all with stopping and saying, you know, that kind of sounds like gossip to me. I don't think I want to, I don't think I want to talk about that. And, you know, some people might be taken aback by that. Too bad. Honestly, if somebody's wanting to sit around and talk, and you know the difference between gossip and just having a conversation. I mean, if you're talking bad about somebody, if, you're, if, if there's some kind of a negative conversation uh, about someone else that's going on, uh, and, and, you know, that's the whole thing. I mean, I mean if, I, if, I'm, if I'm sitting down 
and I'm having a conversation with my boss about an evaluation that he's doing of a fellow employee, and he asks me to talk about what kind of a job that fellow employee does, I have, you know, that's a situation where I need to talk to my boss and be honest with him. That's not gossip. I'm now being asked to talk about the quality of a person's work in the context of an evaluation that, that his boss and my boss is doing. That's not what most gossipy conversations are, right? Most gossipy conversations are, you know, you're just trying to slam somebody because you think that they're somehow you're better than they are. That's what it really comes down to, right? You're knocking them down to try to make yourself feel better about yourself. And I do not have a problem with stopping and saying, no, this is a conversation I don't want to have. I don't really want to talk. And often I'll even say, you know, I don't want to talk about someone behind their back because then I got to sit around and wonder what you're saying behind my back. Seriously, I'll say that, you know, because if, if they'll engage in a conversation with you talking about somebody else behind their back, don't you dare think they wouldn't do it the other way around. They will. The person who's interested in gossip will do that no matter what. And, and, and who, who among us is absolutely perfect so that there's nothing they can criticize, right? None, nobody, nobody. I mean, I try to do the absolute best job that I can for the, for the people that I work for in my secular job, but I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I do things, you know. I, besides that, you, can, you could probably have a great conversation uh, in criticism of me just simply talking about my personality, right? You could just talk about whatever my personality is and criticize that. So the, the point is there's all kinds of temptations to get engaged in sin all over the place, but you have to make the decision to not do it, right, when the temptation comes along. Yes. Well, I would not. So, okay, that's interesting you say that. You're saying gossip is when somebody else tells you about something that you don't have firsthand knowledge of, right? I can say that so-and-so has prostate cancer. Yeah. And I don't really know that he has prostate cancer, and then that passes on. Yeah, well, so I would... I would so I agree. So you so you're classifying that as gossip when you're passing along information. I would not. Uh, I would. I I understand that. I understand. I understand that. But I mean, I'm saying what I'm saying is. Uh, I mean, to me, gossip as is defined in the scripture is always a sin, right? Is that is, is that what you're? You're still saying it's a sin, but oh, I see. You're saying that you could be passing along false information. Yeah, yeah. That's very true. That's very true. Somebody, somebody could, that's right, somebody could say something about somebody else that's actually false in that context. That's true. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's another danger of the whole gossip anyway, right? And here's the whole thing. This is why there's warnings about gossip in the scripture, because once something gets started like that, it spreads like wildfire, right? And so now something that's not even true will end up being spread like wildfire. And now there's all kinds of people when you walk in the room, they give you a, you know, they look at you a funny way when in reality, there's nothing really for them to do that about. So yeah, I see what you're saying. I do see what you're saying. Um, but this is, this is the key, right? The lust conceives when that basically it gives birth to sin when we volitionally give in to the temptation, right? And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, now there's no question in verse 16, it's clear do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. James is talking to believers in this passage. So when he says, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, is he talking about a loss of salvation? No, <laughs> he is not. He is talking about operational death. He's talking about the same thing that we're looking at when uh, death is, and we're looking at it in Romans. Paul talks about death in Romans, and he's talking about operational death. You're still a born-again believer but you're walking in death. We call it carnality. We call it all sorts of things. Walking in darkness. We're talking about all sorts of things. But you're basically walking in death. Your, your spiritual walk is dead. And by the way, uh, Lewis Berry Chafer wrote a fantastic book on this topic called He Who Is Spiritual. That may not be the exact title, but that's the, effectively what it is. A he Who Is Spiritual. And it is the idea of, of the one who is not spiritual is walking in death. And he highlights that in his uh, in his writing on that it's a it's a wonderful wonderful book if you if that's not correct 
It's close to that. He that is spiritual or he who is, who is spiritual. I'm not sure which one. It's close to that. Uh, I could Google it, but I'm not going to. Uh, but anyway, the idea here is we don't want to go this direction because when we volitionally give in to the lust, the temptation, it gives birth to sin. And when that happens, once we, once we commit the sin, it brings forth death. Now we're walking in death, if you will. We're bearing no fruit. We're bearing fruit for death even. We're not even doing anything positive. We're not bearing fruit for God anymore. We're not walking in the light. We're walking in darkness. All you know this, but the reality is what I'm talking about, what I'm trying to emphasize here today is that you've got to recognize that precipice. Do you know what I'm talking about? The precipice. The temptation comes. It's there. It's real. But you haven't sinned until you give in to the temptation. And here's the, here's the final warning on this. Even if you don't commit the actual act, you can actually sin in a mental attitude sin without ever even actually committing the act itself. So if you, if in other words, if mentally you start to entertain the idea of, of doing that, you've already crossed over the line. You're already engaged in mental attitude. So, for example, if there's a temptation to, uh, if there's a temptation as a, as a married person, a temptation to cheat on your spouse, right? Whatever form it might take, there's a temptation to cheat on your spouse. Uh, you don't have to actually commit the act to engage in sin. Jesus said if you actually just lust after the other person, you've already effectively committed adultery. So that's where we cross the line. When you start to, when you start to entertain the idea of whatever you're being tempted to do, you've already crossed over the line into mental attitude sins. Thanks be to God that we have confession of sin and restoration to fellowship. Praise him for that. Because without that, where would we be? We'd all be walking around in darkness, wouldn't we? Thank you, thank you, Lord, that we can be restored. But what I'm telling you is don't cross the precipice. When you see the temptation, say no. Make no provision for the flesh. Just say no. All right. Life of David. David's mighty men. First of all, the chapter about David's mighty men starts with a song, if you will, a poem or a song of humility and praise here at the beginning of the chapter, 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. So we'll talk about that since David was wonderful at this sort of thing. Now, I want you to look. There's, this is amazing actually here. These are the last words of David. Now, this is not the last words that David ever spoke. And that's why if you read that, you would think, well, this is the last thing David ever said. This was his, this was his final words to Israel. This was the last public address that David ever gave to Israel. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares. Now, see... He's, what is he saying there? The man who was raised on high. He has been raised up by God himself, right? David has been raised up by God. He recognizes that everything that he has had in his life where he has been exalted, was his, his, he's been exalted by God. He says the anointed of the God of Jacob. He was an anointed one, yes? Now, he's not the Messiah, but he was anointed to be king. Remember when he was anointed? We started out this whole thing with him being anointed to be the king. Even when Saul was king, he was already anointed. He anointed the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. This is what he's calling himself. He's the anointed and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, this is important because he talks about all of these things and he talks about himself being anointed. What does it mean to be anointed? Yes, I know it means to have the oil to, put, to be put on you. But in the context of David being anointed as king, what did it mean? It meant that he was chosen. Yes, exactly. It meant that he was chosen by God. Guess what? You are also chosen. And have we been anointed? Yes. And it's not with any kind of oil on our heads. It's the Holy Spirit himself. Exactly. We have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So we are anointed as well. He says, and sweet psalmist of Israel. Now, I'm not a psalmist. I will tell you that. I, don't, I, I, don't, I can't write poetry and I can't write music, uh, but uh, he, he could. He was, he was amazing at it. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me 
and his word was on my tongue. And this is a great passage to reference, by the way. There's lots of them talking about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, right? This is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. And I want you to notice both of those things. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. That's the, the Spirit speaking through David, right? His word was on my tongue. But then he says, the rock of Israel spoke to me. So God spoke to him and through him. That's what's being highlighted here. Then we get to he who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. And look at this poetic language. This is is what I can't do here in verse 4. Is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. So that, that's a beautiful, that's beautiful imagery of what it's like when you have someone who rules over those who are righteous, who rule in the fear of God. Uh, this, it's a beautiful thing. It, it shows that everything is everything's springing up. God's provided the rain. God's provided the sunshine and everything's springing up and growing. And that's what it's like when you have uh, a ruler who is ruling righteously, who's ruling in the fear of God. By the way, you know... Um, I'll take a moment here and talk about this. Um, we live in the United States of America. Last time I checked, uh, I think it still is, right? That hadn't changed as of this morning. Uh, we live in the United States of America, and so we have this sort of an idea of, uh, you know, a representative republic, or even some people view it as a democracy, even though we're really not a democracy. But the idea of this form of government is is the best form of government there, there is. Actually, if you really look at it in Scripture, the, the best form of government that you can possibly have is an enlightened monarchy. If you actually have a, a, a king who is a God-fearing king, someone who rules over uh, righteously, as is described here in this particular passage, that would be the best form of government. The problem with monarchies are, <laughs> or there's many, right? the problems are, um, that there's always the idea of the, the king that's ruling is, uh, is mortal. So the king's going to die. And when the king dies, are you going to have another king that comes along? That's one problem, right? The next king that comes along. And often, by the way, if you're reading the scriptures w- along with the Bible reading we're doing now, often a good king, his, the son ends up becoming king and the son's not so good, right? <laughs> so that happens a lot. Uh, and then the other thing is that you can have a coup d'etat, right? We saw that with David. So he was a good king, and yet we had a coup d'etat where some came in and overthrew him and ran him out of Jerusalem. Well, that, so there's problems with uh, a, an enlightened monarchy. But when an enlightened monarchy is in place, it's probably the best form of government. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I, I like what we have here, but I just don't want us to think that it's it's necessarily the best. Verse five. Truly is not my house so with God. Now he's talking about his, he's talking about his house now, which is more than just himself. Uh, so not only is that him, that's his dynasty, that's everything that goes uh, with him being the king. Uh, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? Right. So now in verse five, he's talking about his house. And how God has blessed it. You know, God has blessed his house. He's, he's been under a, the blessing of a covenant made with David. He's talking about things orderly and secured, the salvation, all the desires of his heart as he desired the things of God. Uh, will, he, he indeed not make, uh, will he not indeed make it grow? Then in verse 6, he gets to the worthless. <laughs> but the worthless, every one of them will be thrust away like thorns. Because they cannot be taken in hand, but the man who touches them must be armed with iron and, a sh- and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. Now, I mean, this is vivid language again, very poetic and vivid language, but, you know, you've you got to be careful when you're around someone who's like this, right? The, the worthless ones, you've got to be careful, just like is talked about in the New Testament, when you go to minister to someone who is, who is uh, walking in sin, be very careful, that you not be tempted and you fall into the, 
snares of the devil as well. You got to be always armored up. That's the language we like to use, right? You got to be armored up. You got to be walking in the light. You got to be wearing the armor of God when you go to talk to someone who is in sin so that you don't get carried away also. Uh, but that's, he, he highlights that here. And this is, this is the, the, the poem slash song uh, that David wrote here at the beginning of 2 Samuel 23 to uh, give a message to the people of Israel. And these were his final uh, words. Sorry, let me go back up. Uh, first of all, I, want, you know, I, I talked about how he acknowledged that God had raised him up and had spoken to him and through him. He also recognized the importance of relying upon God as king of Israel, as any king, right? He, he was talking about any king, but he was talking about himself in particular as king of Israel, the utter reliance upon God. And, you know, with his son Solomon, you see that in the beginning and then, if, and then failure from there. You know, we already have seen, by the way, you know, the seeds in even in David's lifetime, we've seen the seeds of the divided kingdom. You know, we noticed how the, the there were the people of Judah who were behind David and the people, the rest of the tribes were like, wait a minute, what do we have to do with this guy? We've already seen those seeds in place, but it's under Solomon's rule that things are going to get really bad. And it's after Solomon that you're going to end up with a divided kingdom. Uh, he contrasted again, as I mentioned at the end, his house being blessed by God and evil men in the very hands of God. Uh, then we get to the mighty men. The mighty men, 37 men who distinguish themselves in their service to God under David's leadership. Now that is uh, 37 men in, uh, in this chapter, in 2 Samuel 23. Before we go, well, I'll, I guess we can talk about it here. So first of all, the list starts with three chief men in the first verses, 8 through 17. Two other men of rank uh, are mentioned in verses 18 through 23. They're not, they, didn't, uh, they didn't make it to the level of the three that are the chief, but they were of note. And then uh, 32 other men are mentioned as part of the 30. And uh, that language of the 30 is, is interesting language. We're going to talk about it a little bit more, but... Uh, really the idea of the 30, that would be a term for a small group. And it doesn't have to be 30 exactly. It's the idea of a group, a small group under a particular uh, role or of, of, of function, right? So uh, it's not 30 exactly, but it doesn't matter. It's just an expression. We do that sort of thing uh, today as well. But verses 24 through 39 speaks of the, the 32 other men. Uh, notably missing from this list is Joab. Now, I'll talk about that for a second. Um, well, let me get to the next point. Uh, this could be because Joab was commander of the whole army during most of David's reign, so it was not necessary to mention him, right? Back in 2 Samuel 20, 23, we talked about this. Now, Joab was over the whole army of Israel. And then it goes on Benaiah, who we're going to see in this passage. The son of Jehoiada was over the Herathites and the Pelethites. Now, um, the, that's local guard. But I'm going to let me back up. But Joab, so, so Joab's an interesting character in all of this because these mighty men who are mentioned here, the mighty men of valor, these are the, the ones that were the great warriors. They were absolutely uh, first class warriors within the army of Israel. Um, I mean, I guess... Is that kind of the equivalent of like an army ranger or some of the others, the seals or something of that nature that are the elite? So it's kind of the equivalent of that, right? So you see these mighty men, and, and then there's, but there's more to it because these men that are listed here, first of all, some of these men were with David even before he became king. Remember when he's out being chased all over the place by Saul? Uh, these men were with David. So, but here's the real key, and this is what I want to talk about with regard to Joab. These men were men that were men of integrity. These men were ones who were men of God. These men were those that David trusted implicitly. This is very important. We have looked at what's happened with Joab do you think David trusted Joab implicitly after some of the things that happened? I think at some point that trust was broken, right? So was 
was Joab omitted from this list? I'm asking the question. I'm not answering it. I'm just putting it out there that it's possible. The reason Joab was not mentioned in this list is because of the broken trust. And so he was not mentioned as one of the mighty men, even though you would, if you look at his fighting skills and you look at his, his leadership ability with the armies of Israel and so on, he would definitely be classified as a mighty man. But perhaps he got left out uh, because of the fact that he, that trust had been broken and he was not somebody that David could implicitly trust. The rest of these men. Now, one of the pers- one of the men that's in the list is somebody that David could trust but he maybe shouldn't have trusted David. That's Uriah the Hittite, right? Maybe he shouldn't have trusted David. But the reality of it is that it's possible that his name was left off because he was the commander of David's army most of his reign, and so he didn't need to be mentioned. But it's also possible he was left out because of the fact that he had broken the trust of David in, in some of the things that he did. Now, there's a similar list, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about this. There's a similar list in 1 Chronicles 11, verses 11 through 47, where some additional mighty men are listed. And it's kind of interesting to look at this. I meant to bring up the Word document, and I didn't do it. Uh, let me pull it up. You guys have it in your notes. Um, let's see. I think I have, yeah, I have this part in a separate document here. Close that. This is a part of your notes here, and you can see David's mighty men there. This is not, by the way, this, this I'll scroll down and give credit where credit is due. This whole thing is from uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, uh, and, it, and, and it's uh, got credits there for Walvert and Zuck and others there. Um, but uh, they put it all together, and I thought it was really good, so I wanted to include it in your notes. Notice how some of the names are different. Josheb... Bashabeth, uh, here it's Jeshobim. It's not even the same name, but it's the same person. And it's, it's interesting because that happens in the Hebrew from time to time. Where, but, and that happens, by the way, in, in, even in the New Testament where we have individuals that have more than one name, right? What was Peter's name? No. Peter's name. Anyone? Simon, yeah. Simon, see, that's what I'm saying. So, so it's not uncommon. What's beautiful here, though, is they do the equating of all of this for you. Some cases, it's just straight across. Here's one that's not even mentioned directly in 1 Chronicles 11, but implied in those verses 15 through 19. Uh, there's, there's individuals that are listed here in one side, but not the other. You can see that. You can go through the whole, the whole list yourself. Here's it's Shema, the Herodite, but here's Shamoth, the Herorite. It, it, it's not a big deal. There are some who are mentioned in Second Samuel that are not mentioned in First Chronicles. And then there's others down here when you get to the end of the list. We get to the end of the list here. There's Uriah the Hittite. Now, look at all these that are mentioned in First Chronicles that are not even mentioned in the Second Samuel. It doesn't matter. We're listing David mighty men. It doesn't have to be the exact same list in both of them, right? It doesn't because David had quite a few mighty men. But here's what I want you to note is that uh, you, can, you have now in, in, in your notes, you can look at this and see uh, the corresponding mention of them in the, in the two places. And so you can put it all together and recognize who is who. This correlates it for you uh, to make it easy to understand when you're reading through that other passage. I just wanted to make a note of that. So there's a, it's a similar list. Uh, there's actually some additional men. There's a couple that are left out. Uh, but it's a list of David's mighty men, nonetheless. First of all, we start with the three chief mighty men of valor. Read through this in uh, 2 Samuel 23, 8 through 17. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Ashabeth, uh, uh, let me get this right, a Tachemanite, chief of the captains. He was also called Adino the Esnite. See, there's another name right there in that verse, right? Because of the 800 slain by him at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, uh, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle. And the men of Israel had withdrawn. He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. See, that, that's what cracks me up about some of this. You know, you look at. 
I mean, this sounds terrible, but you, you have these mighty men who were out there who were engaged in battle, who were doing amazing things. And this guy went out and wiped out a bunch of the Philistines and everybody else had backed away. And then after the after they're slain, then here come the guys, right? Here they come. They're going to strip the slain, right? Well, that's pretty, that's pretty pathetic, actually. Uh, verse, verse 11, now after him was Shema, the son of A.G., the Hararite, uh, and the Philistines were gathered, uh, excuse me, and the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils and the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it and struck the Philistines and the Lord brought about a great victory. Then, then three, uh, we'll get to this here in just a minute, I believe. Let's see. No, through 17. Then three of the 30 chief men, this is the same three. We'll see that in just a minute. Then three of the 30 chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam while the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. He needs that particular water, apparently. Uh, So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate. And took it and brought it to David. Think about that for a second. So he's, he didn't. He didn't just say, "I want, I want some water." He says, "I want water from that well." And the Philistines are there, and so these guys go and they break through, and they get the water and they bring it to David. Then it says, "Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord." That means he poured it out as a drink offering to the Lord. Uh, verse seventeen, and he said, "Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink?" The blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives. Now, they didn't die, but they risked their lives, right? They risked their lives to get him this water. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These these things, and you notice what it says, these things the three mighty men did. So at the beginning, it just says three mighty men, right? At the very beginning, three of the 30 chief men. But then in verse 17, it makes it clear who who they were. They were the three mighty men. They were these three chiefs, these three chief men. So these are mighty warriors. These are the, these are the, the best of the best. Yes, sir. What do you think David's uh, original motive was for asking him for that water? I believe that his motivation, David's motivation for asking for that water is he wanted to see if there were any brave enough to go get it for him. I think that's what he was doing. He was testing the ranks to see. Is there anybody who is willing to get it for him? Yes. Now, that's a great question, Ed. That is a very great, that's a very good question. They went in and they got the water. Did they perhaps take some men with them? And did some of those men die in the battle? So maybe there was blood, right? Maybe there was blood shed in that. The scripture doesn't say, but it is very possible that they took some men with them as they broke the ranks. You know, in some cases, and... I'm, I'm speaking out of ignorance. Derek can tell you probably better than I can. In some cases, in certain operations, you're actually better off with fewer rather than more, right? What's that? Yeah, a night raid or something where you're doing. There's certain cases where you're actually better off with fewer rather than more. But that's a legitimate question, Ed. Did they take some men with them when they went and broke the ranks and got the water? And I, and I can't answer it for you because the scripture doesn't say. But that's a very good question. Uh, so the first of them is uh, Josheb, Bashabeth, as we mentioned. He killed 800 men. Eleazar, who defeated the Philistines there that was mentioned. And then uh, Shammah. Those are the three that are mentioned. These are the three, the elite chief men of the 30, uh, as is mentioned here in this section. Uh, and I, as I said, they, they certainly risked their lives. As Ed said, there may have been others that went as well to obtain that water. For David, the Philistines, you know, they, they were might, they might not have been actively engaged in battle at that time, but the Philistines were basically coming up against them. Yes. Yeah, in jeopardy. See, it doesn't mean that they actually suffered. They went in jeopardy. That's why the that's why the translators added that, because if if it were actually only these three men, then none of them actually died. They risked their lives 
but blood may not have actually been shed. When he means the blood there, he's talking about that they risked their lives. They were willing to put their lives in jeopardy. But it is possible that what, what is going on there is what Ed said. So they actually took some men with them, and some men did die in the process of doing that. So, you're, yeah, it's possible. But it, he is saying it's just that they risked their lives, and he's, he, he didn't want to drink it when they risked their lives for that water. Um, and again, they not, weren't necessarily engaged in battle at the time, but they were there defying them at, at, in Bethlehem. Yes, sir. Right. Yes. Yes. Let me, sh- yeah, let me share that with uh, those who are listening online, and then also the uh, the, the recording itself will have this. That Derek is saying that one of the things about this that fascinated him is they didn't; these three men did not come from the same place. They came they they came from various places, and they joined together with David when David wasn't cool, right? <laughs> the way he said it was, it wasn't it wasn't cool to be part of Team David, right? So. They joined up with him, and they were with him when he was being chased around by Saul. They came to him in the caves. And, and there is language, by the way, in all of that where they actually did bring their families. Their families came to be part of this with, with, uh, and moved around with David. And uh, that was something where probably other people in their extended families were unhappy with them. Join in together with David because, you know, here he is, this, this David guy. Why are you not supporting Saul? You're over there supporting David. And, uh, but yet, because they did so, and they did so, I believe, and I don't know if you mentioned this, and I, did, they, I believe that they did so as a matter of faith, right? They believed that, he was, that Saul was doing wrong and that David was the anointed who was going to be king. And so they joined with David in, in, in his... Um, being chased around by Saul. They joined together with him. And as Derek pointed out, God blessed them with the abilities that we're talking about here, their ability to be able to engage in battle and be able to, to defeat 800 in a particular battle or 300 or whatever the numbers might be. They were blessed with the ability to do these things by God because what they did was a matter of faith. And so it just shows that faith is a, an extremely important function in all of these things, right? It's very important. And did you have part, uh, something else you wanted to include? Sure. Yes. Yeah, you, you, yeah, yeah, right, not normal, yeah. Yes, very good point. So, so the point that Derek's making as well is that, is that, and it's extremely important, I'm glad you're bringing this up, is because when they joined up with David, they probably did not possess these skills to be this, these, these mighty warriors that we're looking at here However, because they did, in faith, join up with David, and I believe David's influence was a big part of that too, um, they, in faith, they joined up with David, they became these mighty warriors, and God blessed them, and they had these great victories, and as they had these great victories, everybody got to see that, and it was more and more evidence uh, that their faith was in the right place, that David was, in fact, the one who was chosen, and so all of this shows uh, their faith working in all of this and how that had an influence on others as well. And so it's really a powerful thing. Like you said, in your situation, it helped you because you recognized how important your faith was in what you were doing in, in, your, in, your, in your time of service and in particular when you were engaged in particular 
um, activities, I'll say. <laughs> so, yeah, and you became, you, the same thing for you. I mean, you, when you first joined the service, you were not the, you were not the, the warrior that you were when you, when you completed your service. You, you grew in your abilities as well. And these, these men became these mighty warriors under David's leadership and in that, in, as a function of their faith, you know, in function of their faith. God blessed them in this. Um, and as we said, David was so overwhelmed by their actions, he didn't drink the water but poured it out. And as we've talked about, uh, possibly because there were men that died on this mission, possibly because he was just overwhelmed by them being willing to do it. Uh, then the list continues with two more mighty men of note. Um, in verses 18 through 23, Abishai, the brother of Joab. That's Abishai's mentioned, but Joab is not. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was uh, chief of the 30. Now it says he was chief of the 30, but look, we'll have to finish it here in verse 19. He swung his spear against 300 and killed them and had a name as well as the three. So what that means is he was well, he was well known. I mean, he, has a, he had a name as well as the three. He was well known. He was most honored of the 30, therefore he became their commander. However, he did not attain to the three. That's very important. It means even though he had a name, he was, was just as well known as, as the three. And we've seen Abishai. What, Ab, what's Abishai's first instinct? Something's going on. He's, I'm gonna go, let, David, let me go over there and chop that guy's head off, right? He was, that's Abishai. That's what we've seen. He's that kind of guy. Uh, but he, he was well known. He was a commander, but he did not attain to the three. He never got to quite the same level as the three that we mentioned in the beginning. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, which we've already met him, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done mighty deeds, killed two sons of Ariel of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. It's interesting that that's mentioned because that would probably be something that David would relate to, right? <laughs> because he had, he had fought that kind of fight in his own life. He killed an Egyptian, an impressive man. Now, the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and had a name as well as the three mighty men. Verse 22, he was honored among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. Same language. And then in, at the end there, it says, and a David and David appointed him over his guard. So all of those verses that we had that talked about the Herathites and remember how we read all those verses? Well, what we're finding out now is those guys were David's personal guard. And Benaiah was over David's own personal guard. If you want to think of it, it's like the Secret Service guys, right? Yes. Yes. His personal guard, yeah. Right. Well, see, that's the thing. So Benaiah, as Derek's pointed, Benaiah, he, he did not come from a prominent tribe. He was from a tribe that was almost considered maybe lesser, if you will. Actually, that's kind of a type of Christ, if you will, right? Because Christ himself, you know, I mean, who, 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 who were they, right? They were nobodies. Uh, but nonetheless, he was actually one who uh, had come up and gained prominence. And it shows you that in David's administration and his leadership, he was not looking at, hey, are you one of the, want somebody from a renowned tribe or renowned family or anything, right? Uh, but Benaiah was able to come and through what he was able to show David, he was appointed over the guard. And I didn't know actually the part about the club, how he had actually gotten that club when he had defeated the lion and he kept that club. And that club was actually what he used to defeat uh, the Egyptian ultimately. Yeah. 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 Well, he, right. Yeah, this Egyptian, when it says the Egyptian, yeah, when it says the Egyptian was um, an impressive man, he was somebody who had, who had actually killed quite a few Hebrews in, the, in, in battle. And so when he came along and killed him, it was significant, right? He was significant that he killed this Egyptian. So, yeah, all good stuff. Thank you for, uh, for adding all of that. First of all, Abishai, 
Joab's brother. By the way, we're going to get Asahel as well. It's interesting that both of them are in there. We haven't gotten him yet, but Asahel's in verse 24. Uh, both of them are in there, but not Joab, right? That's significant. Uh, Abishai, Joab's brother, he killed 300 in one battle, honored member of the 30, um, Benaiah, as we just talked about, appointed over David's guard. Uh, and that's, by the way, that is a, a, a very high position of honor. We talked about... Um, we talked about Mephibosheth and the fact that he was able to eat at the king's table. That's a big deal, right? That someone would be able to come in and eat at the king's table. Um, the idea of someone being appointed over the personal guard. Think about that for a second. This is his personal guard. This is his equivalent of like a secret service, the ones that are going to protect him. You don't just put anybody in that position. This has to be somebody who you really trust and somebody that you believe is going to be able to uh, take care of everything. Somebody who's really good at planning in terms of logistics, right? You're going to go, David's going to go somewhere. This guy's got to be smart enough to figure out how are we going to take care of things where we can protect David and so on. For that matter, I, you know, I, I, is, it, is it possible that Benaiah was one of the ones who, when, remember we talked about how in David, when he went to battle, he became weary when they were fighting against the Philistines and they told him, look, you need to stay back and not come. Is Benaiah possibly one of the ones? Maybe. If he was somebody that David trusted, think about this for a second. If he was somebody that David trusted and he goes out there in the battle and he's too weak to participate the way he really needs to, Benaiah would have been a perfect one to come to him and say, you know, David, you really ought to stay back. This is not good because he's over the personal guard. We don't know that. It doesn't say that Benaiah was part of the group that did that, but it makes sense that he might have been, right? Then we have the rest of the list, and we're not going to go through this list in detail. If you want to read through the whole thing, you can. But at the very beginning, we have Asahel, the brother of Joab, being among the 30, Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shema, the Herodite, Elika, the Herodite. It goes through this whole list. You can read it all the way down. Uh, of significance in the list, uh, I, we have, the, again, Asahel, the brother of Joab, uh, among the 30. We also have, again, as I pointed out at the very end of the list, uh, Uriah the Hittite mentioned as one of the mighty men uh, there. Now, so just as, as a point of reference, a group like this normally would consist of 30 men, but not. it still would re, be referred to as the 30 a technical term for a small military contingent. And by the way, these were, again, the elite. These were the elite, the mighty men of valor they're referred to in the scriptures. These were the elite of the elite. Um, one of the things that somebody pointed out in one of the commentaries, and I thought I would just put it in there, it doesn't really make sense to me given the list that we have in First Chronicles chapter 11, but nonetheless they mentioned it, so I thought I would. It's also possible that two of these men had died. We know Uriah the Hittite died uh, and had been replaced by another mighty man that's in this list. So maybe it was 30 all in all of this 30. But remember, I think the 30, when they talk about the 30, I think it also includes the other ones, the chief three and the, and the, the two. So that explanation doesn't really wash for me. I think it's just a list of 37 people and they call them the 30 because that was the language they would use is that this was a group, this was a small group. But this, these, guys were the, these guys were the best of the best. They were the, they were the ones that you would want out there fighting for you when you had to go engage in battle. And so, when, you know, if there's, for example, I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. If you were, were going to go and you were going to engage in a particular situation and you found that you needed to split split your forces you needed to have some forces here and some forces there you'd make sure some of these guys were part of each side right that you had that you had some of these men as part of both sides because look what happened in that one battle everybody else backed away and it was one of these that was willing to go in and fight the battle you needed these guys by the way i also believe what what derek alluded to earlier about these guys and what they did in battle it actually helped the others i think it gave the others courage I think as they saw these men and their courage in going into battle, it gave the others courage as well. Now, there's always going to be some, right? There's always going to be some. You probably witnessed it yourself. You've, there's going to be some that are still going to be uh, afraid to go. But uh, when you see someone, I, 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 you know, I'll give you a, an example. That I, this just came to my mind. Can you imagine what it did 
to the spirits of those men who were over in Europe when General Patton came and actually talked to the troops out there when they, they were they were actually moving along a road. Right? They're moving along a road and Patton stops and talks to them and tells them he's you know about about how he feels about what they're doing and encourage Can you imagine what that did to them? And that's like these guys would be able to do. You know, they're out there leading things and, do, and, and taking care of things, and, and you watch them and you get to follow them. It's got to be, it's got to be encouraging and give you, give you strength. All right, that's the mighty men. You can go through and look at the list both in the rest, the remainder of chapter 23 of Second Samuel, and also look at the First Chronicles 11 listing, and you can see the mighty men there. These are all significant men uh, that are highlighted in Scripture. Again, I don't believe that they would be highlighted this way in scripture if it were not for the fact that these were men of faith and as Derek pointed out these were all these were the ones who had prospered in their in their service to David as king because of their faith these are all listed in that way as part of part of this uh, section talking about David's life scripture of the week we're going to take a look at that now Psalm 20 verses 6 and 7 by the way, this was all brought about by, um, we were just reading, let's see if I can find it, we were just reading in our Bible reading from, uh, back up here in Jeremiah chapter 9. And we read uh, verses 24 and tw- uh, 23 and 24. I'll read those now before we read the, the scripture of the week. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man excuse me, boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. We've actually had that as our scripture of the week twice. But I loved it. I loved it. And so I I looked for another scripture that was kind of similar and had another slightly different message. And I found this one in Psalm 20. Let's all read this together. Psalm 20, verses 6 and 7. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. So uh, this is important. He says, first of all, in this, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He is looking out for his anointed, his chosen. Again, we are his chosen also. Uh, We know that God is on our side. At least I hope you know that, that God is on your side. Uh, if he is for us, who can be against us? Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Uh, the Lord saves his anointed. Now, sometimes, by the way, salvation comes through physical death and going to heaven. So don't think that salvation always means that you get uh, pulled out of the fire. Sometimes, remember the, guy, remember the, the two that were jumping into the furnace, right? They knew they were going to get thrown into the furnace. They, they said, you know what? God can save us, but if not, remember that in, in Daniel if God can save us from this furnace, but if not, uh, they, they, they knew they were going to be okay either way is the point. Even if he didn't pull them out of that furnace, they were still going to be saved by the Lord because they were going to go be with him. Uh, he will answer from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Uh, the, what, that, the, this is wonderful language because the saving strength of his right hand, I mean, that's omnipotence. Right? That's what we're talking about is God's omnipotence. What can he not save us from? Remember, it's all in the context of his will. Don't forget that. It's all in the context of his will. But what can he not save us from? What, what is there that we face in life that is too great for God? I face things all the time that are too great for me. But are they too great for God? I don't think so. I don't think so. The saving strength of his right hand. So and answer him from his holy heaven. Right? And that, by the way... I believe this is another good passage to use to highlight the fact or to refute the idea. Some some actually have this idea that God created the universe 
and he spun up the whole thing and he created Adam and then Eve from, uh, from Adam and put them in the garden. And then he basically is doing what I'm about to do. He basically is sitting back, sitting back and just watching and going, wow, look at all this stuff that's going on. Isn't that wild? It's crazy what's happening in this world. There, that's taught. There are churches around the world that teach the idea that God started all this in motion and he's just watching everything that's going on. And by the way, they also believe, many of them, that he's learning as he goes, right? <laughs> he's learning as he goes. This is evidence right here that God is actively at work. He's in heaven, but that doesn't mean he's just sitting in heaven watching. Is he watching? Yes, he is watching. But he's also actively involved in our lives. He is not just simply sitting up there watching events unfold. And by the way, he knows the end from the beginning. He's not learning as he goes. I can't believe churches actually teach that. They have to throw away a good portion of their Bible in doing that. But they do. They teach that. Uh, Verse 7, though. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Now let me, let, me, let me tell you how you can apply this. We were just looking at David's mighty men. And Derek very appropriately brought up the aspect of faith with regard to these men and the successes they had. In the United States of America, we can boast in our military might. Right? We can boast in our ability to gather logistical information. We can boast in our ability to have uh, weapons that are superior to our enemies. We can boast in air superiority, which, by the way, these days, air superiority is huge. By the way, you know what, you know what the next one is? Space superiority. Yes, and that's why our president is so interested in that, because that's where we're going to have to have superiority next is in space. Um, and by the way, that's affected me in my secular job. We are actively involved in making sure that we have uh, capabilities in association with that. But, but if we can make the mistake of thinking, you know what, we've got the best military in the world. And that's why we're going to be okay. <laughs> that's not why we're going to be okay. Believe me when I tell you, uh, th- and this is going to sound extreme, but David with one stone could take out our military. If God is with him, right? (laughs) David with one stone could take the whole thing out, right? We need to make sure that the second half of this verse is where we are as a nation. We will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. Now, right now in this country, and it's becoming more and more evident, the only evidence of that right there is the remnant. See, we as a nation... As a nation, we used to be this way. Now, I'm not saying everybody was a believer. But if you go look at, there's a wonderful speech by Dwight David Eisenhower that was given before they went in for D-Day. He wanted everyone in this nation to be praying for what was going to be going on because he knew that if God was not with us, we would not succeed. Are we there today? Think about the world we live in today. It's the same thing is true today. The same thing is true today. But as a, as a nation of people, do you think, do you think that governor Cuomo would say that? I don't think so. What I'm saying is we as a nation are not nearly as unified in understanding and recognizing the importance of God and how we are one nation under God and we are blessed as a people because of God. We used to see that. We used to know that. Even if not everybody in the nation was a believer, as a nation overall, we used to know that and believe that. Not anymore. What we're doing now, boasting in the name of the Lord our God, is done by the the remnant, the minority. Here's the key. I don't want you to make this mistake. Now, this is talking about boasting in chariots and boasting in horses. And I gave that military example. But you personally can make this mistake. God has given you abilities and talents, every one of us. Every single one of us has been given abilities and talents. 
You can trust in that. You can trust in that. And whatever skills we have and whatever particular area we're engaging in and whatever we're doing, we can think that those natural abilities and talents, natural, that were given to us by God, that that's going to suffice. I'm here to tell you right now, you won't succeed. Just like, just like David could throw one stone and defeat our entire military if God's with him, on the flip side of things, Satan, our adversary, he can defeat you if you're relying completely upon your own abilities. We need to not boast in our own, whatever our own equivalent is of our chariots and our horses. We had a class, by the way, I don't know if some of you uh, remember this, but in, in, uh, we had a class where we were talking about how Paul had talked about all the abilities he had, right? He talked about how he could have boasted. He's Pharisee of Pharisees. Look at all the things that Paul had. And he recognized that all of that was basically nothing. And I, I'm not going to go through, the, through it now, but I could go through right now and I could list out to you all the various things that I've done in my life that I could say, look at all these things I've done. Look at all this ability that I have. Right? Look at all that. It's worthless. It's not worthless in the context of using it to serve God. It's not worthless in the context of recognizing what God has given me and utilizing it to the max. It's not. But it's worthless to think that those things are going to get me anywhere. Are those things going to save me? Or is it the saving strength of his right hand? It's the saving strength of his right hand. And I'm talking about in anything in life. This is so important to keep in mind, folks. It's so important to keep in mind. You have always got to realize that whatever abilities and capabilities, whatever capability you might have on your own, it's not enough. It's not enough. You need God to be involved in whatever it is you're doing in order for it to be successful, in order for you not to suffer defeat. In order for, now you, and you might, you might have little minor victories in life, But if you're really going to lead a victorious life, it needs to be the saving strength of God's right hand that's empowering you to get through whatever it is. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me on this? So we we need not boast in our chariots or our horses, but boast in the name of the Lord, our God, always. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your blessings in our lives. We, We have received so many blessings. It's it's almost impossible to, to fully fathom them all. We have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have given us blessings in this temporal walk that we engage in in this lost and dying world. You have shown yourself to us countless times over and over. You have proved yourself in our lives. And Father, we ask that you would help us to not wander off and stray, that we would keep our eyes focused on and fixed upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of faith. Strengthen our faith. Help us to more and more recognize the work that you're doing in our lives. and Help us to become more and more reliant upon you, Father. We tend to be, as Texans especially, uh, we want to be self-reliant. But uh, we know as your children, Father, we need to be completely and utterly reliant upon you. Help us to be humble. Help us to be reliant upon you. Help us to do everything in our lives in such a way that it's pleasing in your sight. And it brings honor and glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and holy name. Amen.